Okay, verse 1. These are the words of the living God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, joining us together once again uh, in your presence so that we can hear from you. We pray, God, that you would help us today to do just that, that you would remove any distractions from our midst, that you would help us to stay focused on what it is you are saying here in your word, and that you would bless us as we listen to it, that you would work in our hearts and in our lives for our good through this message today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if any of you uh, knew this, but lions are very sociable creatures. Lions are very sociable creatures, and they live within a community with one another called a pride. Okay, have you ever heard people say this? Uh, that's that's the pride running with the pride. This sort of thing. That means running with the pack of lions, right? What is a pride? It's it is a family, and these lions they live and they dwell in community with one another, and they are very close although they do uh, venture out on their own from time to time, they mainly stick together, at least within pairs of two, uh, typically. And they're very close, um, all they, although, um, and a pride uh, typically will have uh, 13 lions in it, but you could see more in a pride of lions. Now, within the pride of lions, the lions are very loving uh, toward each other. They play they paw at each other, they, they rub heads with each other, they lick each other, sort of like when we see each other and we kiss, we kiss one another and we embrace and we hug and these sorts of things. Uh, now, the male lion that is the head of the pride is known as the pride male. Uh, he, he is the king, he is the one that watches over the females and the other uh, cubs. And even knowing they are very playful with one another, if a if another male lion from a different pride comes near the pack, guess what that male lion will go out and do? Well, he will go out and take responsibility for the family, and he will defend it. And in our passage today, we see that Christ is like that male lion who takes responsibility for the family. Uh, yes, he is the lamb who gives himself up on behalf of his people, but it takes courage and the heart of a lion to make that sacrifice. 
So in our sermon today, we are going to see three things with respect to this. Number one, because Christ was courageous, he stood in our place. It's number one. Because Christ was courageous, he stood in our place. Number two, because Christ was courageous, we must be courageous. Because Christ was courageous, we must be courageous. And finally, number three, because Christ was courageous, we must stand for him. So we see that first point, because Christ was courageous, he stood in our place in verses 1 through 4. Let's read that again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? All right, so let's set the scene for a moment. Uh, Judas has already agreed with the religious leaders of the day to betray Jesus into their hands. And Jesus knew from the very beginning that Judas would do this. Uh, After he washed the disciples' feet, which we looked at last week uh, in detail, he told the disciples that one of them was going to betray him. And as you could imagine, this created no little stir among them. I mean, here they are, the 12 men that Jesus has invested uh, his life in. They are the ones that he has set apart. They are the ones who are closest to him. And he says, one of you are going, uh, is going to betray me. Uh, during supper that same night, G- Jesus, knowing that Judas would betray him, sent Judas out to do what he, that is Judas, had already determined to do. Jesus sent him out to do what he had already determined to do. And then Jesus gives this long discourse on the Holy Spirit, and afterwards he talks about what it means to be uh, a disciple there in John chapter 15 in that beginning section. And, uh, and then he goes on into John 17 where he gives this really long prayer which has come to be known as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And afterwards, he sets out with the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, So Jesus and the disciples celebrate the Passover within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And then when they leave, they head out east toward the Mount of Olives. And John tells us they go across the brook Kidron, which would have been dried up during that time of year, to where we think there was a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives known as Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus prays this agonizing prayer before the Father, asking him if he would take the cup from him, if it were possible. Uh, you, you remember the scene, right? Jesus goes over to pray these three times, and each time he comes back, he finds the disciples sleeping. Verse, t- uh, verse 2 tells us Judas also knew that place where they went. Did you pick up on that in the text? Look at verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Question, is Jesus trying to escape his arrest and the sufferings that are going to follow? No. If he was, he wouldn't have went to the very place where he knew Judas knew they often went to pray, right? And so he goes there. And what do you know? Here comes Judas with a band of Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and 
weapons. So a couple of things to mention here just to get us into the experience of the disciples that first night. First, the text tells us that Judas procured a band of soldiers. Now, a band of soldiers was typically 600 men, but the number uh, varied. And uh, the Romans didn't always have large groups of soldiers like this in Jerusalem, but it was during the time of Passover, so security was ramped up a little bit. Therefore, when the, the chief priest and the Pharisees were ready to have Jesus arrested, they were able to procure a band of these soldiers to go along with Judas to arrest Jesus. The text also tells us that they sent along with them some of their officers, and these would have been like temple police, men who watched over uh, the temple precinct while people were coming up to offer up sacrifice and so forth, and things like uh, this. So we could say that they're probably at least around 600 men, maybe, okay? It, it is a large group, none to say the least. Uh, Mark says it was a great, mul- uh, Matthew says it was a great multitude that came out to arrest Jesus. Mark tells us that it was a crowd. So here you have this crowd of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus with Judas at the front leading them all, and all of them have lanterns and torches, and all of them have weapons. And you can imagine the fear that was struck into the heart of the disciples whenever they heard this swarm of men coming towards them in the night with weapons banging at their sides and torches over their heads to light the way as they made their way to the garden where they would arrest Jesus, their leader. Uh, Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? That really is an amazing verse right there. The text says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, steps forward and says, Whom do you seek? He came forward and says, Whom do you seek? Do you seek? Do you understand the implications of what he just did there? He knew what was going to happen to him. I don't know if any of you know what it's like to be confronted by law enforcement when they've caught you red-handed and there's a chance that you may go off to jail. Well, some of you might. <laughs> I want you to think for a moment about uh, righteous Corey Tenboom. Do you know who this woman is? Corey Tenboom is the woman who hid. Uh, Jewish people in her home uh, during Nazi Germany when the Nazis were going door to door looking for people to arrest just because they had Jewish blood flowing through their veins. And you have to imagine yourself as Corrie ten Boom for a moment here. The Gestapo comes knocking on her door. And all it takes is one wrong move. Somebody knocks something off the shelf in the basement or in the house or one of the soldiers steps on one of the floorboards, and it creaks just a little bit too much, revealing that trap door where you've got your friends hidden, and that's it. They're going to take those people off and change to Auschwitz where they're going to execute them in the, in the gas chamber, and they're going to take you right alongside them for crimes against uh, the state. And they're going to bring you and torture you and beat you, possibly, and in the end, put you to an awful death. Okay, so these are some of the things that are going through the mind of Corey Ten Boom, when she hears that knock 
on their door, on her door. She does not know what is going to come of it. But friends, Jesus knows everything that is going to come of this arrest. You see that? He understood everything that was going to happen to him. He intimately understands the sufferings that he would have to endure. He knows that this confrontation with the soldiers is not going to end well. He knows that he is going to be bound and taken off and uh, tried. He knows that one of his closest friends has betrayed him. He knows that all of the disciples are going to abandon him. He knows that he will be beaten. He knows that he will be mocked. He is going to be beaten within an inch of his life mercilessly, and he knows this. He knows intimately the horrors of the cross. He knows what it is going to be like when they put those nails through his hands and through his feet. He knows. He knows what it's going to be like to gasp as he begins to suffocate, as he tries to support his own body weight, when they hang him up on that wooden beam by his hands, and he's supporting himself by his feet that are already nailed to the cross beneath him. He knows the pain. Moreover, he knows that he is going to have to endure the wrath of God on the cross. You see, Jesus does not die for his sins on the cross. He dies for the sins of of others. Jesus was an innocent man, right? So he dies for the sins of others, but not just a few others. He dies for a thousand million sinners that day on the cross, and each one of them having committed millions and millions of sins that he's going to have to atone for. You see, friends, Jesus intimately understands the horrors of the cross. He intimately understands What is ahead of him, right? Because he is God. This is what is known as the passive obedience of Christ. He does it all on our behalf. He, He didn't deserve any of it. He allowed it to happen to him. And who does he do who does he do it for? He does it for you, and he does it for me, friends. So we see, because Christ was courageous, he stood in our place. Because Christ was courageous, he stood in our place. We see that second point, because Christ was courageous, we must be courageous, in verses 5 through 9. Let's read 5 through 8. Um, They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. A couple things here. When the soldiers state their reason for the visit, Jesus doesn't waste any time. He does not beat around the bush. He steps out and to this murderous mob, and he says, I'm the one that you are looking for. And the text tells us when he says, I am he, the soldiers drew back and fell on the ground. They drew back and fell on the ground. Now, what is that all about? Here you have hundreds and hundreds of men who could have subdued Jesus in an instance, but yet when he speaks, they fall on the ground. So what is going on here? Is this some sort of holy reverence? Are they falling down before him in 
uh, in, uh, in some sort of respectful, worshipful manner. No, they are falling down before Jesus in fear and dread in this instance. And there's um, a bit of debate about exactly what happens here in this text. One thing that you need to know is that when Jesus says, I am he, when they call him, uh, when he says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he, right? That is a divine name. Jesus is invoking a divine name there. He is essentially saying, I am. In the Greek, it's ego, I me. Some of you might recognize that name, I am, from the Old Testament, right? When God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, he says, you tell him, I am set you. I am that I am. So Jesus is invoking the divine name here. Do the Roman soldiers and these, these chief, uh, these temple police recognize what Jesus is saying? Do they pick up on that? Maybe a few of them. But I think more importantly, and I think more properly what is going on here is that Jesus is exerting some of his divine influence, some of his divine power and authority in this instance when he speaks, and the men get a, get a taste of that, and they fall down in front of him. So we see Jesus is sovereign over the circumstances. As a matter of fact, Matthew tells us in his gospel that if Jesus wanted to at this moment, he could have called down a whole legion of angels to snuff the whole thing out, but he didn't. He submits to it. Why? Look at verse 7 with me, if you will. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost, not one. After this demonstration of his power and influence over the soldiers, he again asked them, whom do you seek? You see, he is laying himself down here. Some of you may remember the verse from John chapter 10 where Jesus says, "Um, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Remember that verse? I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. And who is Jesus laying down his life for in John chapter 10? It is the sheep. And here he says, whom do you seek? I'm the one. Let them go and take me. Right? He's the good shepherd. You see, what Jesus does here is he interposed himself on behalf of the disciples. That is, he stood in front of them. He stood in front of them. He offered himself in their place. He says, I'm the one you want. Take me and let them go. Jesus takes responsibility for his people. He takes responsibility for his people. He is their leader. He is their protector. He is their friend. And therefore, he's willing to offer himself up on their behalf. John says, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. This is something that Jesus says in his high priestly prayer to the Father back in John chapter 17. The Father had given a people to Jesus. He had handed them over to Jesus, and Jesus guards them with his life. Okay, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who loves his flock to the death. When the wolf comes out against his flock, he does not retreat into the background or hide in the shadows, but he goes forward right into the fight. And he is willing to fight until the very end, even even 
if it cost him his life. And friends, if we are ever going to have any real impact in the world for Jesus, we are going to have to do the same. Every one of us have been entrusted with certain responsibilities in this life by God. God has given all of us people and things that we are going to be held accountable for. Um, People in this life that we will one day stand before God and give an account for how we cared for them. And we are to care for them. And we are to provide for them. And we are to protect them from the things in this world that will hurt them. Like Jesus does here. We are to love them and we are to nurture them. We're to invest in them and to do everything that we can to see Christ formed in them so that on that last day when we stand before God, we can say along with Jesus, of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Of those whom you have given me, I've lost not one. Because friends, we will stand before him and have to give an account for the things that we either did or didn't do with what he entrusted to us in this life. Were we faithful church men and women? Did we seek the salvation of this city? Did we take advantage of every opportunity that we were given to make sure the people around us had an opportunity to know Christ? You fill in the blank. What are some of the things that you're responsible for? Right? Whether you're moms, dads, Husbands, wives, grandmas, grandpas, brothers, sisters, whatever, you've all been entrusted with things in this life and people that you're going to have to give an account for, that you're responsible for. And sometimes this takes courage. Uh, Christ is just as controversial today as he was in his day. Uh, The world hates Jesus, and they would like nothing more than to see him uh, bound, beaten, tortured and killed. And friends, let me tell you something. If you will teach your friend, if you are going to teach your kids Jesus, the world would wish nothing less for you. That's just the way it is. A servant's not greater than his master. You see the way they treated him. You couldn't you, you shouldn't expect any less. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, you have to be willing to stand up and say, "Here I am" when they come looking for you. And that can that can mean a number of things. That may mean having your name dragged through the mud by the local newspapers and the media. That may mean ruining your reputation among certain groups of people. That may mean losing certain clientele at your businesses. That may mean kids being unpopular among some of your peers at school, some of your groups of friends or people out there in the world. Um, When the world or your friends or your town wants to put you on trial for being faithful to Christ, you have to be willing to step forward and say, whom do you seek? I, here I am. And that may mean dealing with some blowback from time to time. That, that may mean dealing with criticisms. That may mean going through some really, really tough times. That may mean that we have to fight. And we draw back from that sort of thing because we've been culturally conditioned to do so for so long. Even within the conservative evangelical churches, men have been being groomed for years and years to be effeminate and passive so that when the next cultural trend comes down the line, whatever it is, and it runs into conflict with the, the truth of Scripture, what we believe is taught for years, we're quick to cave. 
And I'm talking about men in the evangelical churches that are supposed to be leading the church of God. We get some blowback from the intoleristas of our day, and we say, oh, that verse right there, here, let me see how I can change that to accommodate you. Let me see how I can change that verse to make it fit your narrative. And we've been doing this for years and years because of a lack of courage, because we have seen compromise after compromise in the church. It's obvious. And our society has continued to force its agenda down our throat, to force its agenda down the throat of the evangelical church so that we will interpret Scripture the way that it wants us to. And friends, let me tell you something. Especially in the day in which we're living, it is going to take bold men. It is going to take fearless men, courageous men, men to stand up and say, no way. That's right. That's right, buddy. (laughs) And that may mean that it's going to cost us some things, right? You may lose some things. I'm going to tell you right now, unless you accept some sort of cultural form of Christianity, the gospel always costs you. It always costs you. That's the way it is. Unless there is compromise. So, in order to do this, we're going to need one another. We're going to need one another. We're going to have to lean on the wisdom of our brothers and sisters in the church whenever these uh, situations come up so that we know how to navigate them. We're going to have to lean on our other brothers and sisters to know how to answer, to know how to debate, to know how to fight, to receive the encouragement and help that we need to persevere during these trying times. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to take us some time to learn how to do this because for the most part, the evangelical church over the last 150 years has not been doing it. It has not been doing it. So guess what? When we go out there, you know what that means? We might lose some fights. We might get some bumps and some bruises. We might lose some battles, but that's okay. It's okay because God is going to use those losses to teach us how to win in the future. But the only way you learn how to fight is if you get out there and fight, right? So, because Christ was courageous, we must be courageous. Because Christ was courageous, we must be courageous. Finally, we see that third point. Because Christ was courageous, we must stand for him in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Again, you've got to get yourself into the scene. The disciples are surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of soldiers, and they have come out to arrest their best friend. And it is natural. Their natural inclination is to try to defend him, right? And I think it's a good and noble desire to want to defend Jesus. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is it appropriate for them to defend Jesus in this way and in this context? 
Uh, during the Last Supper, Christ had told the disciples, if you don't have, at that point, if they didn't have a sword, they were to sell their jacket and get one. And they produced two swords, and Jesus said it is enough. So apparently, Peter ended up with one of those swords, and he kept it for such a, a, an occasion as this. And when they came out to take his Jesus, he swung that thing like it was nobody's business. Right? <clears throat> and I, I love Peter here. <laughs> He, he loves Jesus, right? And he's willing to do anything when it comes to him. But the question we have to ask, friends, is was his zeal misplaced? Well, apparently it was because what does Christ say? He commands him, put your sword back in its sheath, right? Let's put your sword away. That's what he tells him. <clears throat> Why? Well, because this is not the way that the kingdom of God advances in the world. Okay, that's important. The way that Peter is seeking to advance the kingdom of God is not the way that it advances in the world. Jesus says, Will I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It had to be this way. The Christ had to come. He had to suffer. If there was no suffering, there would be no victory. You see, the disciples still don't fully understand the mission of Jesus Christ yet. They are working that out. When it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world, the only way that it advances is through the suffering and death of Jesus. And that is the way that it had to be. And friends, there will be times when you are called on to defend Christ in this world. There will be times when you have to stand up for Jesus in this world. And if you are going to stand up For Jesus in this world, there's something that you have to know. If you're going to stand, you have to stand in the way that he stood in the Gospels, and that is on the cross. Right? It is through his suffering and death on the cross that the kingdom of God comes. It is through the suffering and death that it advances. He stood on the cross in our place. He died the death that we should have died. And through his death, he granted us victory in the world. Christ, uh, friends, on the cross, Christ established his kingdom in his blood. He laid the foundation of his kingdom, as it were, in his blood. And it is through the blood of the cross that the kingdom of God continues to grow and advance in the world. Let me explain. God has appointed means through which he will overcome the world. As a result of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, God has exalted him and made him Lord of all, and he is now king, and he is reigning, and he is presently at work to extend his kingdom in the world. And how does he extend his kingdom in the world? Well, through the preaching of the gospel. When we preach Christ and men bow the knee to Jesus Christ in the world, wherever they are, the kingdom of God gains a little bit more ground in the world. And this will continue to happen until men from everywhere and every nation are bowing the knee to Jesus and confessing him as Lord. But what are the means that he has given us to accomplish this work? Is it swords and clubs? Is it guns and knives? Is it tanks and bombs that we're supposed to go out with? No, it's the means of grace, right? It's the ministry of his word, word and sacrament, right? He's given us the waters of baptism. He's given us the ministry of his word. He's given us wine. He's given us bread. 
He's given us preaching. He's given us teaching. He's given us evangelists. He's given us the faithful exercise of church discipline in the church. He's given us the faith of the saints. He's given us the love and humility with which we are to serve one another. And friends, when we serve one another and the world in humility in these ways, these are the means that God uses to establish His kingdom in the world. It is a cross-centered gospel that we must preach, and it is a cross-centered life that we must live. And when we do, God will use them to overcome the world. So friends, we have seen that Christ is a courageous Savior. He was willing to stand in our place and die the death. He suffered in all the ways that we should have so that we wouldn't have to. Further, Christ gives us an example to follow after in His courage. Uh, We saw that Christ was courageous. He took responsibility for His own, and so should we. And finally, we saw that just as the disciples were willing to defend Jesus, there will be times when we need to stand up in this world for Jesus. It takes courage to be Christ-like, friends. And in this world, we will need courage. But in Christ, we can take heart because He has overcome the world. And through Him, we too will overcome.